We live in a time of tremendous opportunity for innovators, entrepreneurs, and those with skill and imagination. But it seems at every turn, there are forces that slow us down or get us off track. I believe you can trigger your independence and lead a flourishing life, be free to choose, and live according to your own values. Join us in a conversation about big ideas in life, liberty, and the pursuit of your happiness. Welcome to The John Riley Project. Hey, everybody, how you doing? And welcome to The John Riley Project. Happy Friday to you. This is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So thanks for joining us. We'd like to get together every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 2. I know we're starting today at like around 3, a little bit of a late start, but no worries. We just have company here in town and, you know, trying to get some work done. It's been a little chaotic, but I'm really happy I got a chance to join you here on the podcast. So as you know, we're live streaming, so we welcome all of your thoughts and comments. Feel free to type them in on either Facebook or YouTube, and we'd be happy to exchange ideas and thoughts and comments and make this an interactive dialogue. And I think we can have some fun on a Friday. So what are we going to do today? Well, we're going to talk about um, just a couple of interesting local issues that have come up in some recent conversations about electric vehicles and about regulations. I want to explore that a little bit. But I'm, the main core of today that I really want to focus on is another episode or another installment of my Johnny's Rules for Life. Um, you know, last time we talked about taking your life seriously. Well, now we've got a new uh, new item we can talk about in my in my series of Johnny's Rules for Life. And then I've got some business tips that I like to share with you as we get near the end of this podcast. So I got a whole lot planned for you um, and looking forward to your thoughts and comments as we go through this live stream. So um, yeah, anyways, thanks. Thanks again for joining me. I really appreciate it. You know, it's it's interesting here in my hometown of Poway, um, you know, they're they're now carving up Pomerado Road, which is kind of one of the main you know thoroughfares that goes the kind of on a north south route through the you know kind of the the western part of the city. And they're putting in some new gas lines, right? So it's interesting is we hear all this talk about we need more infrastructure, right? That's what we hear about from President Biden. And we've been hearing this comment, really a lot of rhetoric from both the Republicans and the Democrats for a long time. Seems the Democrats are getting a lot more serious about it. But it's interesting that, you know, there's a lot of local infrastructure that's being put into place, sometimes completely unrelated to the federal government. And in other cases, it's not even installed by the government. It's actually put in place by private companies. And so that's what we're seeing now here in my hometown of Poway. They're actually installing a new natural gas line. And I think they want to make the pipe bigger uh, so it has more capacity. And I remember when Mayor Voss ran for uh, you know Poway mayor, it was back in 2014, he was very much against this. And, and he was able to get it postponed or delayed, but sometimes you can't fight the inevitable. And so they're putting it in. I know there's been a lot of people in town that have been very angry, upset, because, you know, there's a lot more traffic. Lanes are getting narrowed from two to one. Um, There's workers that are out on the middle of the street during the day. It's a little bit of chaos, right? But it's actually, if you think it through, it's a good thing, right? I mean, not only are they going to be providing more more services to their customers, but it makes sense that they actually put a lot of this infrastructure underneath the road. And I know that's disruptive for a lot of people's lives, but 
where else are you going to run water, cable, telephone lines, sewer lines, natural gas lines? It obviously needs to go down the road. I mean, because otherwise you'd be infringing on people's private property. So it does kind of stink when they do this. But in the end, it's a good thing, I think. And in the end, you would imagine that the city uh, of San Diego is going to end up having to at least reseal the roads, maybe have a new layer of asphalt. We may may end up getting smoother roads as a result of this if we can make it through this whole process. But it's just interesting, you know, how with infrastructure, people claim they want it, but then they don't necessarily want it in their area. They want infrastructure somewhere else because they don't want their world to be disrupted. So it's funny how it works that way. But I'll tell you what, you know, here in my hometown of Poway, you know, we're like a little suburb outside of San Diego County. It's a great place to live and it's a great place to raise a family. And And so if you go online, there's a lot of Facebook groups that cater to our local community and a lot of really good people are there and we have some really good conversations. And for me, as a guy that's doing a podcast and I like to do this three times a week, it's a challenge to always have content. I mean, this is my 238th episode. And sure, we've had a lot of guests on this podcast. And by the way, I just want to give a big thank you uh, to Mike Smith and Pete Neal that joined us on Wednesday talking about uh, near-death experiences and coma dreams and kind of an interaction with the supernatural. Uh, Mike's story was just fabulous. And I love having guests on board. And honestly, as a podcast host, it makes my life a little bit easier when we have guests on the show. Um, but I've got to come up with a lot of my own content every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So when I have these interesting conversations with some of our friends here in our Poway Facebook groups, it always kind of provides good content to share with you in a podcast episode. So I thought I would explore a couple of these things before we get into number two of Johnny's Rules for Life. And the first one is about electric vehicles. And, you know, I'm a big EV fan. We've got two electric vehicles in our home. We have a Tesla Model 3 that my wife drives. I drive a Hyundai Kona. And we've got our own, we have our own solar panels that power our cars, power our house. We've been able to kind of play the game very effectively. And I'm a big fan of EVs. But what's interesting is, is that we still see resistance to electric vehicles, particularly from people uh, that are our friends on the right, our conservative Republican friends, maybe the Trump supporters that like to keep zinging electric vehicles and claiming that they are not a good solution and all this built in resistance. And gosh, there's so many myths surrounding electric vehicles. In fact, I did a whole podcast just on that, uh, you know, busting electric vehicle myths, if you want to go back and look for that episode. But what was interesting is, is that in this discussion, it was posited initially that electric vehicles, because they don't pay, they don't buy gas, electric vehicles, therefore, don't spend money to help build the, you know, to maintain the roads, because they're not paying a gas tax. Well, Let's break that one down because it's true, obviously, that electric vehicles don't pay a gas tax, but they still do pay extra. And I want to just make sure we're all understanding this is that as an electric vehicle owner, we have to pay $175 extra on our California annual registration fee. So, you know, we can get the new stickers for our license plate. 
whatever the registration value is, and it's usually based on your car and the age of your car and the value of your car, they compute that just like they would for any gasoline power car. And then whatever that amount is, they add an extra $175 on top of it as sort of a way for us to pay for infrastructure that is sort of kind of a replacement for the gas tax. And then on top of that, uh, they implemented a new rule that starting in 2020, and I think this is for for new vehicle purchases or leases, they have to pay a one-time fee of an additional $100. So there is money being spent by electric vehicles. And you might think, well, still $175. I mean, how much does that compare to the gas tax that people pay? So I ran the numbers. I did the math. Let's say you drive 15,000 miles a year. That's basically what I drive. For some people, that's a lot. Um, For some people, that's a tremendous number of miles. But that's pretty much what I do. I mean, driving around town, I go on my road trips. It's like 15,000 miles a year. And let's assume that you are in a gasoline power car. And that gasoline power car got 25 miles a gallon. That's a reasonable assumption. That means you are consuming 600 gallons of gasoline a year. So how much do you pay on gas taxes for that? Well, we remember we broke it down with gas tax. You know, there's a federal gas tax, there's a state gas tax, there are excise fees, et cetera. But the, the state income, the, excuse me, the state gas tax in the state of California is 50.5 cents per gallon. So if you drive 600, if you use 600 gallons a year using that 15,000 miles, 25 miles per gallon mathematics, if you use 600 gallons a year, well, then you'd be paying $303 per year in taxes, just in gas tax. I already pay 175 for each of our electric vehicles. And that's 303 is assuming 15,000 miles per year. Let's just say that you only drive 10,000 miles a year. Well, then you pay about $200 in California gas taxes. That's very similar to what we pay as electric vehicles for our one-time fee of $175. Or not one time, it's every year. It's $175 tacked on to our registration fee. So I think that's important to understand. Um, Again, with electric vehicles, a lot of people have misunderstandings. Um, Here's another comment that's another one of the kind of red herrings that are thrown. People say, well, you can't, we can't put electric vehicles in every house. The the houses don't even have the infrastructure to support it. And this one of our friends here in Poway had posted this, you know, it was kind of a short article, um, you know, basically slamming electric vehicles. And that article's contention was that you need a 75 amp service in order to handle electric vehicles. Well, hell, in our in, in order to actually to power a Tesla, our Tesla, we, we have a 60, what do we have? We have a 60 amp circuit and a 50 amp charger, and that powers both of our cars just fine. And we have plenty of capacity in our circuit board or our, what do you call it? Our, is it a circuit board or is it a, yeah, or our breaker, our circuit breaker board. That's what the word is. We have plenty of capacity for it. It's a make people make up these objections. Um, but what was interesting, we got down to this and this gentleman, I don't want to say his name because he's just an, uh, you know, it's not, I, I enjoy talking about people on the podcast. I, I mention names, especially here in my local community, especially if they are guests on the podcast or if they host certain 
uh, Facebook groups and are very outspoken. Like I comment about Chris Cruz quite a bit. She runs South and North Poway Votes, and I, I think she does a good job, you know, getting her her message out. But sometimes people chime in, and I'm not going to tear them down by name, but I will comment on this. The question was, is I still don't see how electric vehicles pencil out. They don't seem like they make financial sense. Can you help me understand that? Well, I did some rough calculations back of the envelope. So we have an electric, we have two electric vehicles, right? They're powered by solar. We have solar panels on our house and those solar panels provide enough power to provide Power for the everyday uses, <laughs> excuse me, Pat Johnson on the live stream, the electrical breaker box. <laughs> Thank you. That's the official term. Thank you for that, Pat. Um, we have a, a solar, it powers our home and all of our home's electric needs for, you know, lights and computers and, and uh, televisions and everything else we need in our home. And it powers both of our cars. And we deliver a surplus back into the grid, back into SDG&E. So we're actually, we're actually saving, by my estimate, $2,400 per year per vehicle. And again, that's assuming if you have a car that you drive 15,000 miles a year, you have 25 miles per gallon, and you're paying about four bucks a gallon, that works out to be $2,400 a year in gasoline costs. We avoid that. Um, on top of it, we're saving $1,000 a year in maintenance costs. We don't have to pay for transmission fluid changes or tune-ups or, or um, radiator flushes or, or any kinds of, you know, you know, lubricating the differentials. All the typical maintenance costs that go into gasoline-powered cars we don't have to do replacing air filters and and all of the tune-ups that go with it. An electric car is like a big slot car. It's just an electric engine, and it doesn't have all the same mechanics as a gasoline engine. So when I have to get maintenance for my car, what that really amounts to is rotating the tires and filling up the windshield wiper, windshield wiper fluid, and that's it. I mean, compare that to a regular gas car when you bring it in for your 30,000-mile checkup, your 45,000-mile checkup. Those bills can easily be $1,000 or more, depending on where you bring your car. So saving money on that is tremendous. Then um, if you drive an electric vehicle like we do on the um, HOV lane, which is that uh, high-speed lane in the middle of the 15 freeway, you can get on that um, if you have a carpool. There's two or more people in your car. Well, if you're driving solo, you can go in that lane, but you got to pay for it. You got to pay a toll, like you're like you're crossing the Golden Gate Bridge or something. Well, if you are in an in a electric vehicle, you can drive in that lane by yourself and not have to pay that fee. This is a huge deal for people that commute to work. Uh, for my wife, she uses it every day when she commutes because she works, you know, down near Mission Valley. So that. That HOV lane probably saves her at least 10 to 15 minutes in each direction when she, especially during rush hour, that's roughly a $5 toll in each direction. That's $10 savings per, $10 savings per day. That's like another $2,500 per year. So people are wondering how to, 
Well, you get an electric car. Do you save money? Well, you do. I mean, right off the bat, that's $6,900 that you're saving in gasoline, in maintenance, and in using that HOV lane. I mean, that's tremendous. And calculate that over a five-year term. I mean, how long do people typically keep cars? Five years, let's say. That's like saving $30,000. If you know, Excuse me, it's $5,900 a year. So yeah, that's $30,000 a year in, in, in savings. I mean, the, the cost difference between a gasoline power car and an electric car is not $30,000. I mean, electric cars are generally more expensive. But you know what? Those prices are coming down and they're going to start coming down more and more as more people adopt electric vehicles. So in my opinion, it completely pencils out. And what's interesting is, is that there's all sorts of other financial benefits to an electric vehicle. When we got the cars, $7,500 tax credit came from the federal government. You know, they, you just immediately get that cash. Now, when my wife got the Tesla, Tesla had already sold a certain number of cars beyond the threshold. And so they didn't get the full rebate. I think she only got $3,750. But then we each got an additional $2,500 from the state of California. So for my car... I got $10,000, like free money that was given to me on top of all of those other savings that I just explained. Um, in addition to that, we, we actually charge our cars at night. So that means that we're paying money to get juice off the grid at extraordinarily low rates. I think we're paying like nine cents a kilowatt or something like that. And then during the day, we don't charge so we maximize the use of our solar panels, and we are actually sending just a flood of surplus back into the grid. That, in turn, is offsetting what little bit of energy we use during the middle of the night and the energy we use during the day. And the end result is, is that our electric bill, the, gas and, the electric portion of our SDG&E bill, is virtually nil. Most months, we actually get a credit apply to our account because we're pumping so much ex excess energy back into the grid. But the point is, is that with EVs, even if you don't have solar, if you charge them at night, you get a special discount from SDG&E on your electric rates when you charge between midnight and 6 a.m. That's only available to electric vehicle owners. So huge financial benefits. Then on top of it, we get these sweet parking spaces. Like if, like for example, if I go down to the, the Target here in Poway, they have electric vehicle charging stations and a parking spot that's right in front of the store. In many ways, we're closer to the front door than the handicap spots are, which is shocking. Um, we, I, we've been to other places where it's the same thing, where you not only get preferred parking, but you get free charging. That's that way at Stone Brewery. We went, up, we went up there for Mother's Day. And at Stone Brewery and Gardens in Escondido, right next to the, uh, the handicapped spots, we get free charging. So all kinds of benefits to it. You know, I, it's funny that there's still some people that resist electric vehicles, maybe because it politically rubs them the wrong way. And I get it. I mean, people that buy electric cars, they're getting subsidies. And they use those subsidies to buy the car. It actually is a form of corporate welfare in many ways. 
But yeah, those subsidies flow through the system. And But other people object to it. They just think it's not a practical solution. They don't believe in the technology. And I'm telling you, it works. It works great. And so what we do with our electric cars is we're not necessarily tree huggers. We're not a bunch of, you know, Greenpeace granola um, eating hippies that live out in a commune. I mean, we're not liberal at all when it comes to this sort of thing. I see electric vehicles for me as a financial win. It's my way of, quote unquote, playing the game. It's my way of taking advantage of all the incentives that people are throwing at you. Um, We pay a ton in taxes at the federal and the state level. You know, here in California, taxes are crazy. If there's an opportunity to get some of that money back, hey, I'll take advantage, especially if it's for a car that I really like in the first place. A car that has all the cool technology and that's fun to drive. And they're going to throw money at it on top of it. They're going to give me money, give some of my tax dollars back. How could I say no? Um, So I just I know there's still resistance to electric vehicles, but I just hope people can open their minds and learn and grow. And, And especially if you kind of play the game and get solar and create your own little you know, electric power generation system at your home. It's like we have a power plant on our roof. Boy, you can really effectively play the game because you're not paying for gas. You actually not paying for electricity. You got to pay for your solar panels, whether you finance them or lease them, but you're not paying for electricity. You're not paying for gas. You're not paying for maintenance. You're not paying to drive in the HOV lane and They're giving you as much as $10,000 from the federal and state government. I mean, it's just fabulous. I mean, I would encourage anyone, if you're going to get a new car, go test drive an EV. You'll be shocked at how wonderful they are, how fast they are. I mean, you put your foot on the accelerator. I mean, your head gets jolted back like G-forces. Probably not as much as Pete's Corvette. Calypso. I've been in the car with him and boy, you can get sucked into the back of that leather seat in that car. But for the average car, an electric vehicle is unbelievably fast and quick and nimble. You'd be shocked. They're beautiful cars too. Um, So, you know, I have a Hyundai Kona and by the way, I lease it. I lease it through my business. Um, And that car is actually, I'm going to, my lease is expiring in about 10 months. So I'm going to have to start looking for a new car soon. I'm looking forward to that. It's always fun getting a new car. Pat Johnson on the live stream says, I want to buy one, but have to get past the initial higher cost and the charging stops on road trips. Okay, let's break that down. Yeah, they are more expensive than a lot of gas cars in terms of, uh, you know, for roughly equitable vehicles, right? Now, by the way, you can buy a used electric vehicle that has really good range, like a Nissan Leaf, for under ten grand, and it's still a really nice car. It's amazing, but a lot of um, you know, like the the Tesla Model Three, you can get those for under forty thousand, and that's before you get the rebates from the federal and the state government. So financially, when you factor in the rebates, they're very much on par with a lot of gasoline power cars of a similar class. Um, so, and a lot of times what people do is they use the federal rebate as their down payment. So there's a lot less cash out of pocket when you walk off the the lot. That kind of works nicely too. The charging stops along the way, 
Yeah, if you're on a if like we have our cars in our garage when we drive around town, the we 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 don't ever have to use public charging stations when we're out on the road. I mean, you know, unless we go to Target and they give it to us for free, I'll take advantage. But generally, you know, our cars like my car is rated at 258 miles of of range when it's fully charged. My wife's is about 230, I think, on her Tesla Model 3. I mean, it's rare for us to ever drive that many miles in a day. So we just charge at night and we never have to use public charging stations. We just use the one that we have in our garage and it works great. But on those cases where we do go on road trips, well, yeah, we have to use public charging stations. And oh, by the way, I can drive from Poway to downtown LA and back and never have to use a public charging station because I get it all from the the roof of my house and my charging station in my garage. But when I go on my road trips to Nevada, when I went to Pahrump to go see Pete race his Corvette Calypso on the Spring Mountain Raceway, I did have to stop. Well, when you do that, it only takes you about 45 minutes to an hour to charge. And that's assuming you're going from near 0% to about 80%. Those high-speed charging stations along the highway will rarely get you to 100 because there's just so much power. They kind of taper off at 80%. But if you're on a long road trip, stopping for 45 minutes to an hour is not a really a big deal if you know you get a charge like once every 250 to 300 miles. I mean, that just generally when you want to want to get out of the car and get something to eat or go for – get stretch yourself out you know, and just kind of relax – it's definitely longer than getting gasoline, but it's not like you got to wait four, five, six hours to charge your car. It's usually less than an hour. And those charging stations are getting more and more powerful so that they can be charged in less and less time. Like one of the cars that I'm considering getting when my lease expires next year is the new Hyundai Ionic. That car supposedly will charge from zero to 80% in under 30 minutes, like around 20 minutes, it'll get it done. So the technology is improving all the time and they're going to be charging faster and faster. Uh, Pat says, I want a Tesla Model S P100D. Okay, I'm not familiar with that specific one. Um, Yeah, the Model S's are nice. In fact, you can get a used one. Tesla has used Model S's and Model... What's the other one? Is it a Y? I think it is. Um, where you can get some of their higher end vehicles used. There's a lot of them coming off of leases. Um, you'd be surprised what's available in the used market. But if you want a new one, man, they're sweet. But the greatest thing is when when my wife got the Tesla Model 3, the buying experience was completely different than going to a regular auto dealer. Because, you know, when you go to an auto dealer, you know, you got to kind of sit down and go through the process and then you got to haggle on the price. And that's kind of a game in and of itself. And then when you're going through the process, you know, they try to upsell you on this, upsell you on that. And you don't really know the value of those things. And you're thinking, okay, yeah, they want to get the, the Under Armour coating and all these other kind of high-end sort of highly profitable add-ons that they keep trying to get you with when you're buying a car. And that process can take how long to sit in that room with the the guy at the dealership? I mean, you're there for two or three hours, right? Well, when my wife bought her Tesla Model 3, she just went online and she was able 
to order her car, select her color, select all of her options, just like she was ordering something from Amazon. She, she went through various menus and selected um, prices, selected options. She saw the price change as each option was added. And then when she was done, she gave them a credit card so they could take a deposit on the car. And then we, um, and I, I'm sure she probably provided additional information so the monthly payment could be managed because they provided financing through Tesla. And then we went to Carlsbad to get it. And it was in the business park in Carlsbad. And they had a couple of warehouses there, all these Teslas and people showing up to get the car. And we were able to walk in, submit our information, get the car and out the door in less than 30 minutes. It was shocking. So compare that to what it costs. Like when I went to the Hyundai dealer to get my Hyundai Kona, I had to go through the same rigmarole that a lot of the gasoline power car people had to go through. So it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, I'm a big fan of EVs. I I love talking about them. I love the technology. And there's just so many financial benefits to owning one. So whenever I see like people online, a resistance to electric vehicles, I'm like, come on, man, you know. Get with the program, you know, learn about it because it changes so fast. A lot of times people are offering up objections to electric vehicles based on the snapshot in time five or six years ago. Well, a lot's changed in that amount of time. Electric vehicles are better, have greater range, in many ways are more affordable, and the technology is better. So again, if you're going to get a car... I would encourage you to at least check out an electric vehicle. Go for a test drive. And hey, maybe it's not for you. Okay, that's all right. But you'd be, you'd be really surprised how fun they are to drive and how financially they pencil out so well. So I wanted to share that again. A lot. It's funny how some of these d- topics come from our conversations. And there's one more I want to share. This was a, you know, we talked about this in a previous podcast and it was... Um, It was the one, remember we talked about public financing of elections? That was about three or four podcasts ago. And in that same conversation, we were talking about this whole notion of how people get regulations upside down in so many ways, right? And the, the whole discussion was about, we need to get Money out of politics, right? We got to get money out of politics because it's corrupting the system. And and so that's why we need to have publicly financed elections. That was kind of the whole angle. Well, it's funny how people think that people think that regulations from the government exist to protect us as people. And sure, there are some regulations that do protect people. We could talk about clean air and clean water and a bunch of others, but people fail to realize that so many of the regulations that are, that exist that are on the books, they don't benefit us, you or me. They benefit the corporations. They benefit those that have influence and have essentially bought off politicians. I mean, after all, what are all these corporate lobbyists lobbying for? So I'm a, I've always been a big fan of deregulation of of actually unwinding the way the government rigs the system, the way that that people, that lobbyists are able to buy off politicians and then get favorable laws or regulations passed that benefit the corporation at the expense of the individual. 
There's so many examples of this. A lot of them are in pharmaceuticals, like with big pharma, like with Medicare Part D, which is the prescription drug plan. Do you know that they keep the prices of drugs exceptionally high in that program, and it is illegal for the federal government to negotiate prices with pharmaceutical companies? It's That's baked into the regulatory code. That's part of the reason why medicine is so expensive is because the regulations have been set up to benefit pharmaceutical um, companies at our expense. And they go a step further. Like, you know, we can go into Mexico. In fact, one of my my great aunts was visiting, or maybe she's a cousin. Yeah, a cousin, I think. And she was visiting here with my family. and, And she needed to get some medicine. But to buy it in America, even with Medicare Part D, it was still exceptionally high, the price. And so what we did is we went to Tijuana. We crossed the border. You go into one of the pharmacies there, and you can buy the same medicine as what we buy in America, often from the same the same brand name, in many cases, maybe even manufactured at the same plant where that medicine was made for American consumers, they have that in in Mexico at a fraction of the uh, price. And then what you have to do is basically kind of smuggle it back into the United States. I remember my cousin was doing that and she was buying legit medicine for her health needs. But that's just another way they write regulations to benefit the corporations rather than individuals. I just think it's a really important thing that people fail to understand So it's funny how these conversations come from our local discussion here in my town of Poway. We even talked about, you know, the Affordable Care Act, right? Did you know when they passed that? Insurance companies were guaranteed not to lose money for the first three years. Like, how could that be possible? They set up the system. So an insurance company could not operate at a loss by providing these new healthcare policies. They rigged it. So the corporations were able to be profitable in many cases at our expense where taxpayer dollars were subsidizing these companies and it's built into the regulatory code. So again, it's just funny how regulations are sometimes looked about, looked about differently. A lot of times people think it's all about clean air, clean water, but so much of it is that's how they rig the system. That's what lobbyists lobby for are these special rules that block competitors, that protect their profit margins and essentially set it up where it's harder and harder for new companies to compete with those established companies. Insulin's a really good example, right? People complain about insulin prices and they're saying it's so expensive, well, why is it expensive? I mean, insulin's been around for over 100 years, right? But in the United States, there's only three companies that sell insulin. Only three. How could that be possible? If insulin is so expensive, if insulin is just ridiculously high priced, why aren't there new people coming into the market, offering it at a lower price, trying to essentially win market share? But you can't do it because the regulations that are built in to U.S. patents are manipulated by insulin manufacturers in a way that makes it harder for new companies to compete. 
So um, it's amazing. And people complain about insulin prices, rightfully so. But when you give three companies essentially a monopoly is what it effectively works out to be. You end up blocking competition. And so they have no reason to lower their prices. In fact, that you could argue that they're colluding and it's legal for them to do it. That's how the regulatory code is used to distort the system. Okay, enough of that soapbox. I thought that segment was only going to be about 10 minutes and ended up being almost a half an hour. Okay, um, what's up? We're going to talk about um, Johnny's Rules for Life. And this is going to be installment number two of my, of my series. And I'm looking forward to sharing more of these as I go. You know, these are what I'll call the things I've learned as I've grown up, as I become an adult, as I become a middle-aged, gray-haired man, um, that I wish I would have known when I was younger, right? I wish I would have known these things or or practiced these things to a greater, how, how should I say, to understand them at a greater depth, to understand these frankly, these principles, these rules in life that would have actually made my life better. And these are things that I love discussing. I share them with my children all the time. And I'm, I think it's a great opportunity to share them with you. So the first episode we did, I think we did it on Monday, and it was about taking your life seriously. And obviously that's critical, right? Taking your life seriously. Well, we broke that one down and and really, you know, taking your career seriously, not not sacrificing yourself in many ways, getting into lose-win relationships. And we, we broke that down pretty well, I thought. Well, today, this, this new installment, we're going to talk about learning to say no and to say it often. So that is the second rule in life. Learn to say no and say it often. So what do I mean by this? Well, obviously, we need to protect our time. Our time is probably our most valuable asset. I mean, money, we can make money. If we lose money, we can make more money. But you can't make more time. You, you can lose time. You can waste time. But all the way along, you can't get it back. Time is our most valuable resource. That's why it's so important for us to be able to say no to people and to projects and to assignments that don't suit our needs. You know, sometimes we could be just too darn agreeable. <laughs> and this is how I was when I was younger. I was much more willing to say yes, largely because I either wanted to be liked or I wanted new customers for my business. I, I was not selective. I was not weeding out opportunities, but instead taking on things that I really had no business taking on. What does it do? It takes me off track. It doesn't serve my needs. It just, it distracts me when I'm taking on projects that I really shouldn't take on. Um, you know, cause people always try to twist your arm, you know, get you to volunteer for something that maybe you have no interest in volunteering for, or in other cases, they might want you to provide any number of things for other people that really don't suit your needs. Sometimes you're in business and there's a lot of competing ideas on what you should do in business and you can't do them all. 
you got to learn when and how to say no. And I went through this with my business when I first started. Because, you know, I my career, I was working in corporate America and middle management for a large company and doing well. But I really wanted to start my own business. And I had a moonlighting gig that grew and grew and it grew to a point that I could quit my day job. And I was so overjoyed by that. But now suddenly when I was out on my own, when I was really depending on customers, it was no longer just a side thing where if that ended up not working out, it wasn't going to be that big of a problem because I still had my day job. Now this was my day job. So I was hungry for new customers and I took on a lot of clients that I really shouldn't have. And what those clients ended up doing was distracting me, taking me off my focus. There were clients that wanted me to perform things for them that were really not in my sweet spot. And oftentimes there were companies or or individuals that wanted a tremendous amount of my time and offered very little compensation for it. But because I was so hungry for new business, I took those things on and I learned a valuable lesson. I should have said no, because time is our most valuable asset. Learning to say no is so powerful. So, you know, be careful to commit. I think that's a critical part of this in the rules for life. Be careful to commit because when you commit, you know, that's your word, right? And so when you commit, you can't just say yes and then try it. And if it doesn't work out, you flake out. I mean, that's going to damage your character, your integrity. Be careful to commit. And when you do commit, then you need to follow through. But that's why it's so important to say no, so you're not committing to more than you can handle. But there is a funny story about this. So a couple of weekends ago, we had some family in town, and they both worked. They're both they're a retired couple. They're my wife's cousin and her husband. They both worked in a large corporation, um, done, did very well for themselves. They're now in retirement. And this... You know, my wife's cousin's husband was telling us the story how he would be in a meeting in corporate America and they were trying to get certain things done, right? They were trying to implement new systems, new procedures, and they needed the participation of their IT department, you know, their information technology department, you know, essentially the software programmers to implement these new systems to allow them to expand their business and to do business more efficiently. And he was always so frustrated with IT people because they would say no almost right out of the gate. (laughs) Um, And he actually would throw them out of a meeting. He said, if you're in my meeting, I have one rule is if you say no, you're gone, you're out. And he was throwing people out of his meetings. I mean, it's just hilarious. And here I'm really preaching the opposite, right? I'm basically saying, When you're looking at the opportunities that are in front of you in personal life, in business life, your mind should be programmed that the default should be no, unless there's a compelling reason to say yes, unless there is an opportunity where you're going to benefit by by saying yes. And I know, I know for me, my, my interactions with other IT people can also be frustrating, um, because they're the gatekeepers for a lot of things in corporate America and they know it and they're careful to commit just as I'm really sharing with you. So I, sometimes I don't really fault them, but it's frustrating at times, but still 
be careful to commit. And it's okay. I talked a little bit about this in taking your life seriously. It's okay to be selfish. Okay, what do I mean by that? Because there's, there's two kinds of selfish. There's the good kind and the bad kind. And we all know the bad kind is selfish, right? I'm not suggesting that. That's a person who's like a lying, cheating, um, stealing person, an SOB who not only exclusively thinks about themselves, but to a point where they want to damage those around them. Well, you don't want to be that. You don't want to be that a-hole. But if you are selfish in the right way, and what I mean by that is, is taking care of yourself, looking out for yourself. In many ways, putting yourself first. That's a healthy kind of selfish, in my opinion, where you're basically saying, I value me. I value the relationships I have, the work that I do. I value how I spend my time. And you're going to choose to spend your time in ways that serve your needs. And I think that is a healthy kind of selfish. And it's hard for people to get over that. We live in a world where we're taught that altruism is really the way we should go about business um, or, or really about as we should go through life, right? We should not look, for our, look out for our own needs. We should be there to serve the other person. You know, we, you know, we should never come first. We need to come last. We're taught that in many ways. It's reinforced in our culture. It's reinforced in religion. It's reinforced in a lot of places in society where you're looked upon negatively if you assert for your own needs. So it's hard for people to understand that there's, there is such a thing as a good version of selfish, but there is. And I think if you can understand that, you can be much more selective in the kinds of relationships, projects, assignments. You can be more selective in how you spend that most valuable resource that you have, and that's time. It's okay to be selfish, the good kind of selfish, the good kind. And, that, and some people might call it self-interested or rational self-interest, but that's the good kind. And I would encourage people to warm up to that idea. What else in my rules for life? Um, yeah, don't, this is a similar. Don't be a servant to someone else's needs. We can be of service, right? In, in business, we're of service to our customers and we trade. We provide a product or service for them. They pay us. And hopefully those are of roughly equal value in terms of how the buyer and seller perceive what they're spending. But sometimes people want you to be a servant to their needs. For you to essentially sacrifice what you want so they can get what they want. In many ways, that's not win-win. It's almost like a win-lose relationship. You know, I remember back, again, this is, gosh, 
20 years ago. And I'm working in corporate America. This is shortly before I started my company. And I had worked on this project for my client or for my, my employer. And it was, I think actually this is sounding familiar. Did I, did I say this on Monday? I think I might've, but I had basically was working for my employer and they wanted me to take on a project that really wasn't aligned with what I wanted to do. They wanted me to do it because I was the only one that could do it. At least the only one that was readily available that could do it. But it wasn't something I wanted to do. I I was interested in growing and learning new things and seeking opportunity within the corporate hierarchy, you know, essentially to find promotion opportunities. But what I found is, is that they just wanted to sort of pat me on the head and say, no, 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 you just do this, do this for us. And I remember just really bristling from that. Now, granted, I was getting paid, sure, but it was for work that I didn't want to do. And I remember I ended up doing it for a while, but it just became so discouraging that I ended up eventually leaving the company, and I'm glad I did. Um, it was it was a case where, while I was, you know, because our compensation at work isn't strictly financial. What we get at work, if we do work properly, it should build our self-esteem. It should make us feel good about who we are and what we do. The work you do is a reflection of who you are as a person, right? And if you are productive at work, if you are not only providing value for the people in your company or maybe your customers, but you're providing great value for yourself and you take pride in the work you do. You build self-esteem. That could actually be more valuable to you than the amount of dollars that are in your paycheck. That would greatly enhance your overall quality of life if you're doing work that you love to do or work that's consistent with your values. I was in a case where I was asked to do work that was not consistent with what I wanted to do. That I was essentially being told to do that for them to serve their needs when it wasn't really serving my own. I struggled with that for a while, but I eventually left that job and I'm, I'm happy I did. It was difficult. There are a lot of good people there, but sometimes, you know, it's like I said, you, you got to learn to say no a lot. When you say no, you gain control over your situation. When you say no, you set up boundaries on what's acceptable and unacceptable for you. Rather than being a yes man and going along with the flow, a lot of times that can go at your detriment. Here's another part. This is another lesson I learned along the way. This is also sort of like saying no. You ever been in a situation where there's a difficult decision that needs to be made? And it could be it could be a very big decision or maybe a medium level position decision or perhaps even a small decision. But you're in a case where 
the option, the best option is not very clear. And there can be people that are really urging you to make a decision. What I've learned, there's really two ways to look at this. What I've generally learned is, is that it's okay to wait. It's okay to hit the pause button and not be pushed into a situation where you have to make a choice that you're not comfortable with. It's not necessarily saying no to it, but it's saying you can, you can pause. If that decision is difficult, it's not clear, sometimes taking time will allow that decision to become clearer. And it's hard to do in corporate America, particularly when there's so much pressure on people to perform. That's a very valuable lesson. Now, the other part of it is, and some people will encourage this, but this really only works well if you're in a very entrepreneurial situation, is that if you're faced with a difficult choice, sometimes it makes sense to pick one option and go with it, as long as you have the authority to stop at any time. Because, you know, when you make a choice and you suddenly go down a path, in a, in a certain amount of time, it can be very clear that this is not the right decision. But sometimes in corporate America, you know, they've got investment in that decision and they're going to find a way, come hell or high water, to get it to work. And it becomes a square peg, round hole situation. It becomes a forced solution. Many corporations work that way. If you happen to be in a situation, particularly if you're self-employed or you are the owner of your business, then that might be the exception to the rule where you make a decision when the, when the options aren't completely clear, just make a choice. And if it turns out to be a failed choice, a failed option that you have the authority to quickly reverse course and then go down and choose the other option, if that now suddenly makes sense. Um, to me, that's a really important topic because there have been times where, you know, especially talking about cars, right? You ever get the sense that when you're buying a car, you're in that negotiation room and it could be heated and, and it becomes emotional. A lot of times that's how the salespeople want to get you as a customer, to become emotionally involved, Sometimes you just got to be able to walk away when you're in those situations where you feel like you're being pushed or pulled into a direction that you may not feel comfortable with. It's okay to walk away. I've done that a few times when buying cars and you're in the heat of the negotiation and then I just walk away. And some might say it's like a, it's theater to try to get a leg up with the salesperson. And it is to a degree, but more so for myself, it was, I was helpful for me because I was able to get away from the heat of it all and think and be more rational. And then when I went back in, I was much more better equipped to really f negotiate my way to a deal that worked for me. So I guess the point is, is, if you don't know what to do, then it's okay to do nothing. And a similar one, this is a funny one, is 
oftentimes in negotiation, the first person to speak loses. You ever been in that situation where you'll be in a negotiation and someone will propose a number or propose an idea and then they expect you to react to that. But you're not entirely sure how to react. I've been in that situation and it's fun sometimes just not to say anything. You know, it's funny when um, one of my employers long time ago, my boss understood the same rule as I did, but we never actually compared notes and realized that we both followed the same rule that in a negotiation, it's often smart not to say anything that sometimes the first person that speaks will be the loser. And I remember we were in one of these conversations. I can't remember if it was about my salary or it was about something, but we were clearly in a negotiating situation and I just kept my mouth shut. And so did he. And we stood there staring at each other for a very uncomfortable amount of time. And I'll tell you what, I broke first. I did speak. But what I did say is this. I said to him, you know what? I says, I think you're doing what I'm doing. I said, I think you're negotiating and you're not speaking. And you know that the first person that speaks will lose. And he ended up laughing about it. And I laughed about it. And it kind of broke down the tension, which was really good. But it was funny, like how we both understood that. But I guess that's another part of this, you know, in my rules for life, learning to say no and saying it often. Sometimes you have to learn when not to speak. If we tend to be more, you know, too agreeable, we sometimes talk too much. But if we have control, if we set boundaries, if we learn how to say no, we'll understand when it's appropriate not to say anything. I like to think about the rule. I remember someone said this a long time ago. It's always stuck with me. Is we have two ears and one mouth, and we should use them proportionately. We should listen a lot more than we speak. John Carson on the live stream. Hey, John, come down to the VFW tonight for burger night. Everybody wins at the VFW. Hey, John, are you going to have the Padre game on TV? Um, The Padres are playing the Astros. I think it starts around five o'clock. If so, I'll come down and say, hey, um, the VFW, that's that's right off of old Pomerado Road, right? Kind of near the Big Stone Lodge. I think that's where that is. Um, That sounds great. Um, you know, type in some more thoughts on it. I think that'd be a lot of fun. I haven't seen you in a while too. You know, John Carson, he's a guest on this podcast back in 2018. Yes, the Padre game will be on at 510. Okay, perfect. Um, I may make a trek down there. Is it, by the way, is is it 21 and over there? Um, actually, it doesn't matter. I, my son is is here and he's with one of his buddies from out of town, but they're both 21. Maybe I can twist their arm and, and join me. So yes, on old Pomerado. Sounds good. Okay. What else in this, my Johnny's rules for life, number two, learn to say no and say it often. Here's another one. Uh, you know, we always make a to-do list. Do you, do you have a to-do list? I have mine. I, I have like a little notepad file in my Microsoft Windows that's constantly changing. It's just my to-do list. 
And I'm always in there prioritizing things. What do I need to do next? What are my big three things I want to do today? And, you know, I did it today. My big three, this podcast was one of them. One of the things I started doing not too long ago, and it's been really helpful, is to create a stop doing list. To make a list of the things that we're doing now that we should stop doing. That, in many ways, is more powerful than a to-do list. Um, it's kind of like the notion of additions by subtraction. I remember I talked a lot about that last summer. I went through a huge addition by subtraction kick. I remember I, we, I cleaned out our garage, our shed. I cleaned out a bunch of my closet, a, bu- a, a bunch of clothes in my closet and in my drawers. I went through so much of my stuff and just got rid of it. Purged it, gave it away, threw it away shredded it. A lot of business paperwork I went through as well. I was clinging on to so many things. I decided that I didn't want to add anything new. I just wanted to subtract. And boy, did it feel good. Really did. And I've also implemented stop doing lists. And that's really helped me. It's hard sometimes to stay focused on them because you still have the day-to-day things you got to get done. So your to-do list is really important. And that's daily. But that stop doing list is almost just as important. I think a lot about that in my business. Because over time, we we start creating new products and services, new initiatives, new ideas. And suddenly you might have 20 different things going on at once. Sometimes you just got to know when to stop doing things. And I think that's really powerful. John Carson says, rules for life, stay out of dark alleys, both in reality and metaphorically. It's good good advice. Go to the light, right? Go to the light where there's truth and generally good-natured people that'll be there for you. Take care of yourself. Yeah, stay out of dark alleys. That's That's one for the stop doing list, right? Maybe you've gone down that path, the the metaphorical path. You know, I think we've all been down it in reality and it's always uncomfortable. But yeah, metaphorically, that's a good one, John. You know, stay out of dark alleys. A a similar um, line on that. I remember a friend of mine said, don't do anything that you would find to be so embarrassing that they put it on the, on the, as a headline of your local newspaper. That's good advice too. That's kind of a way to check yourself, right? I think that's good. That's a good rule. Um, what else? I, I think the last part of this is about learning to say no and saying it often. Always trust your gut. Boy, your gut can tell you things that your rational mind cannot. Your gut understands things. Your subconscious understands things that your conscious mind doesn't. If you're in a situation that's difficult. And for whatever reason, you're really uncomfortable. You know, you're essentially, you're, to use a Spider-Man reference, your spidey senses, they're tingling, right? The, you can feel the, um, the fluttering in your stomach. You can feel that a situation is not right. You don't know why. You can't explain it. You don't understand it. But there's something there. Always trust your gut. Always. If for nothing else, 
just to avoid making a decision. Like I said earlier, if you're in a case where you're not sure what the best option is, sometimes it's best not to do anything at all. But always trust your gut. There, there have been cases that I can cite in both my personal and my business life where my rational mind was trying to convince me to make a certain choice. And I was able to analytically rationalize it, justify it, and prove that that was the right path to go down. But still all the while, my gut was just uncomfortable. Maybe you've been in that situation. And sometimes we will overrule our gut and we will go with the sound logic that was presented to us, that we reasoned, that we rationalized. But a lot of times we get down that path and we realize we made a bad choice. Again, that's happened to me in my personal life and in my business life where I ignored my gut. Always, always trust your gut. Your gut knows more than you give it credit for because that's your, your subconscious talking to you. That's yourself basically screaming at you saying, don't do this. This isn't right. This doesn't feel right. So always pay attention to that. Yeah. Trust your gut. Okay. We're about an hour in. Um. I think this is the last thing I'm going to comment on before we wrap it up. And I just want to offer up this idea. This is a whole different topic. My podcasts were kind of all over the place today. Um, I've had a bunch of pent up ideas that I wanted to share. This is a business idea, a business tip. You know, I like to provide more of this in my podcast. You know, we love talking politics. We love talking about culture. And, you know, we talked about electric vehicles and regulations to start off this podcast. And that's fun. I enjoy it. I love talking about local issues. But I think it's important that in this podcast, you get value from this. Right. It's not just me on a soapbox telling you what I think. I want to be able to provide information that I think is hopefully helpful to you in your personal life or into your business life that I can share some of my own ex- experience. And you might look at me and say, well, this guy, who the hell does he think he is? You might think what I'm telling you is BS, but I like to share what I think is valuable. That's why I coming out with this list of my Johnny's rules for life today was learn to say no and say it often. Well, I want to offer up a business tip. And this is one that I would encourage you to consider And that is, is to produce content consistently. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is, is that in your business life, no matter what you're doing, whether, you know, what your company does, what the value your company provides to the, to the world in which you serve, to your customer base, there's a lot of great things your company does. But often you're just not sharing it with other people. Producing content every day is basically one way for you to evangelize to the world the value you bring to them, the value, the impact you make on the world around you. And producing content, I mean, what does that mean? I mean, I'm talking about, well, like if you have a website, let's just say as an example, you have a website, keep updating that website um, to make sure that you're articulating the right message, the core message of what your business provides. A lot of times a business 
will have their products and services that they list on their website, but maybe it hasn't been updated in a while. And they're now offering other additional products and services that aren't even on the website. I just did that for my company website. I just added 10 new products to my company website that I had been actively selling and promoting, but had not yet gone back and updated as part of the capabilities of what my company offered. So keep updating and sharing the kind of work that you do. And if you do it the right way, you can make it search engine friendly and then people can find you and ultimately give them an opportunity where you can serve them and provide value for them. What else? Write blog articles. I'm trying to do more of this with my, uh, my business as well as with this podcast. Write more blog articles. What do I mean by a blog? You know, write articles where you're sharing your knowledge, sharing the information you have that can be helpful to those customers. You're not necessarily touting your accolades and the great things that your company does, but you're showcasing your knowledge, your expertise. You're showcasing ways that you can be of value to others. So produce content on a consistent basis for your company. Social media is another great place to do it. One of my clients has a social media person and it's like 50% of her job. The other 50%, she does other work. But I'll tell you what, the social media content that she produces for my client's company is fantastic. Just great. And it's not necessarily telling people about, you know, we got these products for sale and, you know, come on down. It's not that at all. What she'll do is she'll go visit our customers and get video of the projects that are happening at their home. So my client sells, you know, essentially products in the home improvement industry. So she goes down and gets video of new kitchens being built, new bathroom remodels, new doors and windows being put into these uh, homes. In some cases, brand new homes that are being constructed, custom homes, gorgeous homes, showcase houses, wonderful things to share on social media that give people inspiration for the kinds of great things they can do for in their home. Um, just really good stuff. I mean, social media also, if you do it right, you're not just sharing content and essentially top posting information about your business. But what you are doing is the rule that I shared earlier. You have two ears and one mouth and using them proportionately. You should be using social media as a way to listen and to engage. I, I often think of social media very much like going to a cocktail party, right? Where you're kind of in a big room and there's a lot of people there and you're kind of mingling and kind of bouncing around. And we've all been at one of those parties when there's a guy there that just loves talking about himself, right? About how great he did this and how he did that. And, you know, generally we don't want to be around people like that, right? And social media is the same way. But a lot of times what I think is important to do with social media is to listen and to find conversations that are already going on and seeing if there are ways you can add value. A great way to do this is if your company is in a particular category of business, you probably have five to 10 what I'll call keywords or keyword phrases that you always pay attention to, right? So let's say, for example, let me just pick one. Let's say 
you know, here I'm using a microphone here in a podcast. Um, let's say you sell audiovisual equipment. That's your business. Whenever you see maybe a conversation about a microphone, that might be a keyword to listen for. You can search in social media on, based on keyword or better yet, you can use certain tools like Hootsuite, which is a great social media tool where you can track keywords. And so anytime, anywhere on the internet, uh, in social media, like in Facebook or on Twitter, mentions the word microphone, it pops up on your screen. And if people are interested in which microphone is best and they're looking at microphone A and microphone B and comparing them, if you sell microphones, you can respond to those people and add value. You can explain your experiences with each of those products and share your knowledge and expertise. That's a really effective way to play social media in the corporate world. It's also a really effective way to win and influence new friends that you meet at a cocktail party. It's to listen and understand what they're talking about and see if there are ways that you can provide value that's of help to those individuals, that's interesting to those people, that complements what they're doing. So, yeah, providing content online for a business, so crucial, making it useful, enjoyable, inspired. I mean, that's the kind of innovative content that's so important. Think about it in terms of if we post this on social media or if we write a blog or if we create more web pages for our business, will our customers thank us for this? That's the mindset we need to have as we, as we, create, as we create more content. There's so much more you can do. A businesses really should be embracing more video content, doing their own videos about new products, about new services, about the exciting things they're doing for their clients. Like I talked about my one customer social media person going out to client sites and getting great video content. I've seen other cases of small businesses just talking about different products that they offer and why they're valuable and some of the innovative and interesting ways they're using those products to be of help for other customers. Video is so powerful and it's so easy to do. I mean, look at this. I just got this smart smartphone not too long ago. If you're looking at my video on YouTube or on Facebook, you can see it. There are five camera lenses on the back of this phone. This is a Samsung. Um, what is this? It's a Samsung Ultra S21, I think it is. It's a great phone. The camera on this is unbelievably fantastic. It's so easy for businesses to create good video. And I've got in the back of my car, I actually have like a mobile um, kind of a backpack of video gear that I take with me when I'm on the road. And I've got a tripod. I've got um, a rig that I can put this phone in and I can attach an external boom microphone to it. They're really inexpensive and they're really, really good quality. You'd be shocked at how easy it is for businesses just to do a lot more video content and sharing it on their website, sharing it in social media, building out a YouTube channel. Very powerful. YouTube is the second most popular search engine on the web. Google's number one, YouTube's number two. And by the way, Google owns YouTube. Video content on YouTube is so awesome. Like a lot of times it's fun. You know, we've, we've interviewed a lot of the local politicians here in Poway and 
as well as a lot of their competitors when they ran for office. And in many cases, if you do a Google search on any one of them, at least the ones that I've done a podcast interview with, the video of the YouTube video of that podcast interview will often show up in page one of the YouTube of the Google results. Um, providing more video content, building out a YouTube channel, it doesn't need to be highly produced, but it can be so valuable. Produce more content, do more email, do more podcast episodes. So that's what I've been really trying to do. You know, that's why I'm sticking to this Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, you know, for the most part, I've been pretty good at sticking with that schedule and I push myself to do it. I encourage you in your business, produce more content. If you can pull it off, if you can produce at least one piece of content every business day, it could be creation of a new web page or an update of an existing web page. It could be an email. It could be a blog article. It could be a single social media post. It could be any number of things. Heck, you could even create a podcast for your business and find that it is of great value to your customers that you serve. So that's my business tip for the day. All right. Um, a couple of quotes to close this one out. Before I do, I encourage you to follow me on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com. There I've got all my social media platforms. You can sign up on our email list and you can see all the different podcast platforms where we have our, our episodes Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, all the links to all of those platforms are there. Go to connectwithjohnny.com and you can get that info. Um, here's a, a really great quote. I mean, we talked earlier about electric vehicles. And this is a, I didn't get the name of the person, but it's it's from CNBC. You know, CNBC is one of the the networks of the NBC family, right? They have NBC, MSNBC. This is CNBC. They said members of the millennial and Gen Z generations care more than past generations about climate change. That's true. But younger Americans have been slow to show that belief in one important way, electric car buying. Only 10% of electric vehicle buyers are between the ages of 25 and 34. A big reason is price, but the cost gap between electric models and gas models is beginning to shrink and that shift is going to accelerate. Very true. You know, we're talking earlier about how does an electric vehicle pencil out? They're getting less expensive because as the technology improves, as there's more mass production of these vehicles, they're going to be less expensive. And frankly, for the, from the point of view of a manufacturer, they're cheaper to produce because you don't have all the complexity of an internal combustion engine. In many ways, these electric motors are like, they're like a big slot car. Remember slot cars as a kid, you have that little you know, gun that would throttle your car around the track, like a hot wheel on a track. Still love slot cars, but that's what these electric vehicles are like. And they're getting cheaper, not counting the rebates that are available to you. So again, I encourage you to check out EVs. Then on, to- on the topic of regulation, we talked about that also at the beginning of the podcast. Here's a great quote from Dr. Milton Friedman, Nobel Prize winning economist, a guy that I really, really like and support what he has to say. He says, corruption is government intrusion into market efficiencies in the form of regulations. That's exactly right. Because like when we talked about Medicare Part D and prescription drug medicine and the pricing, in in an efficient market, 
those prices would be negotiable. And as a result, people like you or me, or, you know, in this case, Medicare patients, seniors over the age of 65, if the market were efficient, they would be getting much lower price medication. But because the system is rigged and there are regulations that prevent that kind of price negotiation, that's when we get corruption, right? Because big pharma uses lobbyists to pay off the politicians to distort the system to their benefit. So it's a great quote. It's, it's often how people get regulations completely backwards. Corruption, according to Milton Friedman, is government intrusion into market efficiencies in the form of regulations. Regulations are a form of corruption. People hear regulations, they think clean air, clean water. How could that be corrupt? It's, there's so much more going on in that regulatory code. That's why I encourage people, when people talk about deregulation, this is what we talk about is unwinding all of that corruption. And then finally, to the topic of saying no, a quote from Steve Jobs, you know, the former CEO of Apple. Um, he passed away, how long ago was it? Five, 10 years ago. Um, but a great innovator, um, a great thought leader. Um, Steve Jobs said, people think focus means saying yes to the thing you've got to focus on. But that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to the hundreds of good ideas that are out there. You have to pick carefully. I'm actually proud of the things I haven't done as the things I have done. Innovation is saying no to 1,000 things. So he gets it. He understands the power of no. And even in a corporate environment, there are lots of ideas. There are lots of employees that have really good ideas. But you can't do them all. You have to learn to say no and say it frequently. And to me, that's definitely a huge rule in life. Something that I wish I would have practiced at a much younger age. I think when I was younger, I was too agreeable. I was too, I was, you know, I essentially wanted to be liked. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to find affirmation from the acceptance of others when really we get our self-affirmation internally, we create our own happiness, right? That's going to be another Johnny's Rules for Life. We're going to get into more about self-esteem. But um, learning to say no is so powerful. It really is. As long as you're not in the conference room with my wife's cousin's husband, (laughs) who will throw you out the conference room the minute you say no. That's bold. That takes a lot of brass balls to do that. But that's a fun story. I enjoyed hearing that. Um, But still, Learn to say no. It could be your most powerful tool because your time is a limited resource and you'll never get it back. Okay. Thank you everyone for joining me. This is the John Riley Project. This is episode number 238. It's Friday. Have a great weekend, friends, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog or get more information please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.